Welcome, welcome. Good to see you all once again. <laughs> well, good morning. Welcome to February here. Welcome back to Weymouth Community Church. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, we're really glad you're here. Uh, my name's Chris. I am the pastor here. We're excited to worship together. We'll be uh, singing some songs together, praying together. Uh, uh, we'll be doing some other fun things, and we'll end our time uh, around the Lord's table with the time of communion today. So, um, uh, but as we get started, uh, as we prepare for the worship service, just a few brief announcements, uh, a few reminders of some things coming up. You can always keep up uh, with stuff by reading the bulletin, going to our website, weymouthchurch.com. We also have a church center app you can download. You can scan the QR code on the back of the uh, bulletin and check that out, download that. Um, but just a couple things coming up. We have a all-nighter on February 17th for our Weymouth students. This is uh, grades 6 through 12. Um, we're going to be meeting at the Foundry Social at 6, and then we're going to come back here to the church, uh, do an all-nighter, hang out, uh, and then eat breakfast together. Uh, so we're going to be meeting at 6. Kids will be able to be picked up at 8 from the church. Um, so that's going to be for middle schoolers. We're going to have lots of fun, you know, shooting Nerf darts in the hallway and playing games and, and doing lots of fun things, and then also spending some time uh, studying the Bible, doing some, some stuff with that through the night, and uh, nobody's going to sleep, so if you see any, if you see myself or any of the volunteers that weekend, just know we'll be walking zombies, so don't take anything we say too seriously, um, but that's going to be a fun time, February 17th into the early morning hours of the 18th, and then that Sunday, uh, the 19th, our WOW ministry, our, our wonderful Women of Weymouth ministry is hosting a fireside chat that Sunday, February 19th from 4 to 6. That's going to be a time for women to come together, encourage one another, have some fellowship, and also uh, think together about how to start preparing for Easter, because Easter is right around the corner. So uh, the women's ministry is going to be launching a 40-day season of just devotional preparation uh, leading up to Easter. So that'll be launched at that fireside chat on the 19th at 4. And then finally, I just want to say a thank you uh, to so many of you who uh, we're here yesterday, who served yesterday for the memorial service of uh, Sandy Fredrissi. Um, we celebrated her life, her home going uh, with Bill, with the family. Uh, we packed this place out. It was a, a very sweet, moving, wonderful testament to the, the beauty of Sandy's life. So thank you to everyone who came and helped set up, who helped provide food, who helped clean up, who came to show your support for Sandy and Bill. And we want to keep them in our prayers, too, as, they, as, as Bill and his family move forward and continue to grieve, and, and also we want to thank God for Sandy's life and for her witness, for her encouragement that she was to so many of us. So uh, as we get started in worship this morning, let's just take a few moments now then, uh, in light of all that, to just pray in silence and prepare our hearts for worship. psalmist writes, Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. And gracious Father, as we think about uh, yesterday, all that uh, took place here, as we think about you as the God of our salvation, the God who bears us up daily, who even delivers us from death, delivers us even through death into your eternal presence through faith in Christ, Lord. 
We thank you once again for Sandy, for her life, for her faith, for the joy she brought so many. We thank you for how that was celebrated yesterday. And we pray that those who are here, those who heard of her testimony, her life, her faith, her witness, um, that you would move people to, uh, to faith in Christ through her example, through her story. And, uh, and as Bill and his kids and, and as their grandkids and great-grandson, as they move forward, uh, the rest of their family and friends move forward in this season of grief. Please grant them your grace and your peace. Help us as a church family to continue to come around them. And Lord, I pray as well that you'll help us to bear one another up, to point each other to your grace that bears us up each day to the deliverance you have provided in Christ. As all of us go through different struggles, different challenges, different hardships, um, help us to shine the light and the love of Christ into each other's lives through the words we say, the words we sing, the words we share with one another from your word. Lord, help us to be a church that bears each other's burdens and that points each other to your sufficiency, your sovereignty, your grace, and your goodness. And help us to praise you together for all of these things that you have revealed to us in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand, and we'll sing together.
because uh, this morning we get to do one of my favorite things to do in church life, which is uh, baby dedication, right? So uh, uh, this is something we do as a church family to, to celebrate uh, the new life that comes into our congregation and the birth of children. And this is a time where we invite you know, the parents and the families to come up and publicly in front of our church family, uh, just dedicate their, their child to the Lord, dedicate themselves in uh, committing to to raise their child in the Lord, so it's it's something we do to to celebrate the gift that God's given us, that He puts us together in families, He gives us children, and to remind us together that uh, the children of of believing parents, the children of, of Christians, they're they're part of our church family, they're part of our our body here, and um, and all of us are seeking together as a family in Christ to help one another raise our children in the Lord, help one another point our children to Christ. It's a reminder that we all come from individual families, but that together we are one family in Christ. And that that is no small thing. That is a significant part of who we are, part of our identity as Christians. So with that in mind, let me read for us from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So with that in mind, I want to invite the Smiths to come on up. to the front here. All right, welcome guys. Well, we got a mic for you here. Maybe uh, just to start off, maybe you just want to introduce yourselves. All right, I'm uh, Christopher Smith. This is my wife, Amanda, our youngest, Bennett, and our oldest, Jason, and my parents, Chris Sr. and Mona. Senior, all right. Three Chris's up here. I know, I like right? That. Yeah. That's good. That's a good name. It's got the similar shirts going. Doug was giving us a hard time about that earlier. I mean, obviously, you got the memo, so. Yeah, it's good. It's good. You, yeah. you, almost, you can't really tell us apart, is it? Yeah. Except yeah. for the glasses. That's, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Great. So, Chris, Amanda, Jason, Bennett. So, um, this morning, what we're doing is uh, we're joining Chris and Amanda as they give thanks for their little one, for, for Bennett here. Um, and we're acknowledging the claim that the children of a Christian home have upon the prayers and the service of our church family. And so we welcome, we welcome Bennett, Bennett Smith, as, as Jesus welcomed children, as he welcomed children into his arms. We welcome Bennett into our, our church family. Uh, we also acknowledge the, that God has a claim upon the children that he's given to uh, believing parents, and that it's the duty of uh, Christian parents and the duty of the church to work together together. Uh, so that, God willing, in the years of understanding, as Bennett grows, uh, he may come to place his faith in Christ. That's our prayer, that's our hope, that's our call together as family in Christ. Um, so I just have a couple questions for you guys uh, to answer. Just, you can just answer in the affirmative with we do. Um, just some questions, and then we'll, we'll just have a, a time of blessing and prayer. So first, uh, Christopher and Amanda, do you acknowledge with gratitude the goodness of God who has brought you the gift of this son. We, we do. do. Uh, do you recognize the serious and tender responsibilities which are now yours, and that it is your duty to teach and train Bennett from his earliest years to love and obey God? We, we do. do. Do you then resolve that, enabled by the grace of God and guided by the scriptures, you will bring Bennett up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as to always regard this as your constant duty and sacred privilege. We do. Do you promise to endeavor to order your home, your words, your actions, so that Bennett will be surrounded by pure thought, holy living, and a Christ-like example? We do. All right. Well, I'm gonna uh, attempt to take take Bennett here for a blessing. We'll see how it goes. Hey, buddy. Hey. Oh, nice. I like that. Oh, you're doing good. Can you say hi to all the people? Yeah? Hi, I like those brown eyes. Look at that. Lady killer over here. Um, <laughs> well, Bennett, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have promised that you will uh, not only be our God, but also the God and Father of our children, of our church family. And so we give thanks to you for Bennett. We ask that you'll keep him under your care 
and that you're in your protection. We pray that please, uh, according to your grace, that you'll bring Bennett early in years to know and love and follow the Lord Jesus. Grant him that he may grow wise and strong and in favor with God and man. We pray that you'll bring Bennett safely through childhood days. You'll deliver him from the temptations of sin, of youth, of of the challenges of life. Lead him to a living faith, a living hope in Christ. And lead him in due time to witness a good confession to Jesus Christ and to do so all the days of his life. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you've given us the gift of families, that Jesus himself had a family, had an earthly home. And so we ask that you'll bless the home of Chris and Amanda, that you'll grant wisdom and understanding to these parents, to all who have care of Bennett, that he may grow up in your love. And we ask this for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. There you go. Get it back to mom here. <laughs> Slowly making his way back. All right. Well, thank you guys. You can have a seat. Thank you for coming up. And I want to invite the other oh, clap. There you go. And I want to invite other kids, you know, any other kids that are here to come up for our, our catechism time? Um, any kids up to fifth grade, welcome to come on up. We're going to do our next question here. I'm, I'm in first grade. You're in first grade? Nice. I don't know what grade I'm in anymore. Um, <laughs> you don't have a grade. That's true, I'm old. Um, all right, you guys, welcome back. Welcome. Uh, hey, come on up. Yeah, welcome to, the, welcome to the party up here. This is good. So, we're going to get into our catechism. Does anybody remember what a catechism is, just to review? Uh, yeah, I like it. Yeah, so here's our questions and answers that teach us what we believe as Christians. This week we are on question number 22. Uh, but before we show that, I want to ask you guys, do you, have you ever in school had a substitute teacher? Yeah. Yes. Now, what is a substitute teacher? What does that mean? Someone who takes your teacher's place while they're gone. Someone who takes your teacher's place. That's right. Yeah, substitute teacher is maybe your teacher's sick, maybe they're on vacation, maybe they're not around, and so they come in and they, they fill your teacher's spot. Now, can anybody just become a substitute teacher, or do they have to have some sort of qualification? Yeah. Right, yeah, they might not have to get a master's or something, but they have to go through some kind of process to get a license to become a substitute teacher, right? Because they have to be a teacher in some way in order to come in and, and teach your class, to come in and, you know... Uh, teach you things, but also avoid paper airplanes and spitballs and people throwing paper around their back, right? That's what kids do when substitute teachers are around, unfortunately, right? Um, so yeah, substitute is somebody who uh, is similar to your teacher, who is able to come in and fill your teacher's role, to come in and, and fill your teacher's place. Let me ask you guys another question. How many of you guys know what a senator is? We talk about... Somebody who works at the Senate? Somebody who works at the Senate, very good, yeah. Senator, congressperson, is somebody who is in the government and who, in, in our country, we have what's called uh, a government that's based on representation. Representation, that's a big word that just means that we have people like senators and politicians who uh, ideally, doesn't always work out this way, but ideally go and are supposed to represent the, uh, the will of the people around them, the will of the people in their state or in their county or whatever. So they go and they make decisions, they cast votes based on Here's what, I, here's what my people would want me to do. Here's what the people in my city, my state would want me to do. So they go to the government as our representative, as people that go on our behalf in our place. And I want, to, I want you to keep those two ideas in mind, a substitute and a representative, right? Somebody who fills our, the spot of another person and somebody who does something on behalf of another person. Because those two ideas are 
both in our question this week, uh, which we'll see if it pops up on the screen here. I don't know if I got in. Yeah, question number two, 22. So uh, we've been looking at Jesus. He's our redeemer. He's our rescuer. He's the one who came to deliver us from our sins, to pay the price for our sins, to bring us back to God. And last week we saw that the, our Redeemer needs to be fully God and fully human. He needs to be 100% God and 100% man. And so our question this week is this, why must the Redeemer be truly human? And the answer is that in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. Whoa. So, yeah, whoa, nice. So Jesus, he was fully human, and it was important for him to be fully human so that he could be our perfect substitute and our perfect representative. When Jesus came, he lived a perfect human life. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never stole. He never, you know, got mad at He never said mean things to his sister. He never did anything wrong. He never disobeyed God. But he didn't just do that. He's perfect, right? But he didn't just do that for himself. He did that for us. He did that so he could be, he was our perfect representative, obeying God's commands for us. And then he went to the cross where he died as our substitute, where he died in our place, took the punishment, the death that we deserve. And Jesus couldn't do that if he didn't first become fully human, if he wasn't born as a human baby so that he could identify with us. He could be our perfect substitute. He could represent us before God. And so what we see is that Jesus is a perfect savior. And we'll talk about this next week as we look at his divinity, but he's able to do for us what we could never do. He's able to stand in our place to represent us, to die in our place, so that we can be forgiven if we trust in him. Does that make sense? Yes. So think about that, that Jesus is our perfect substitute. He's our perfect representative, and it's because he is God in human flesh. He is fully human. And then next week, we'll look at what it means that Jesus is fully God. But before we go, let me pray for us. Well, gracious Father, we thank you that even though we were lost in our sin, that you sent a Redeemer that you sent your son to take on human flesh, to become fully human, to be our perfect substitute, our perfect representative, to live a perfectly obedient life, to give us his righteousness, to take on our sin and die in our place on the cross. We thank you for the salvation you've provided in our perfect Savior, Jesus. Help us to rest in him, to share him with other people, to point to the truth and the love and the grace that you have revealed in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, we're going to go to Children's Church now, if your parents signed up for that. So come on up, go with Mrs. Martin. And then just a note, we'll have a time of communion at the end. So we'll invite the kids to come back for that as well. Um, and the rest of us will stand and sing another song together. Christ.
scripture reading is from uh, Mark chapter 5 verses 21 through 43 and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus name by name and seeing him he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying my little daughter is at the point of death Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touched even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talatha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, just the, the message that you send in your word, Father. We thank you that it, it is the power uh, for salvation. And Father, as we sit under your feet today and, and take in what you have for us, Lord, uh, use your spirit, Lord, to, to help us to learn what is here, help us to apply it to our lives, and as we go, Lord, that we will become more and more like your son. In Jesus' name I pray. reading that for us. So when I was in middle school, I think, um, my brother and I one day decided we were going to go ride our bikes to our friend's house. Uh, we grew up in Shaker Heights. Uh, the friend lived only about five, ten minutes away. Um, but if you've ever driven through Shaker, Shaker Heights, you know it's a very easy place to get lost in. Right? We used to joke growing up that uh, the people who founded the city, who designed it, designed it to be confusing on purpose because Shaker was a planned community and they didn't want people driving through it to get to Cleveland. And so some of the streets have weird dead ends and uh, weird, it's like a giant labyrinth sometimes. So you know, my brother and I trying to get to our friend's house, we got lost. We got lost and uh, we were lost for about three, maybe four hours driving around Shaker. Now we knew how to get home and we knew the way to get home, but we were just really determined to make it to our friend's house, to not give up on the mission. So we spent an entire afternoon riding our bikes around. Um, and this was in the days before kids had cell phones. This was in the days before we could call home and say what was going on. So we never thought to stop somewhere, ask for a phone, give our parents a call, let them know what was happening. This was also during that strange time in the early 2000s when uh, there was a lot of sensational news stories about children being kidnapped. Um, and so you could imagine what my parents were thinking when they didn't hear from our friend that we had arrived when they didn't hear from us for three, four hours. Um, you can imagine what they were thinking. There was one point where we even stopped at the Shaker Public Library and we went in, and instead of asking for a phone to call our parents, when my brother and I asked for a map, you know. <laughs> we didn't know how to read a map. We didn't know where it's, uh, but we just thought, hey, maybe this will help us. Um, so we did that, and so we finally, after three, four hours, gave up, decided, all right, we're not making it, let's go home, rode our bikes back home. And I can still remember vividly the moment when my brother opened the door and just was just immediately just swallowed up, just pulled into the house uh, by my mom. Because of course they were worried sick. They had been uh, panicking for a couple hours. They had called the police. They had called my grandparents up from Stowe. They had called all our friends' parents to go driving around looking for us um, because they thought something had happened to us. They were worried about us and they were desperately seeking anyone who could help. And I thought about that story this week because here in our text in Mark 5, we have another desperate parent. 
not a desperate parent who is willing and desperate to find anyone who can help their child. Uh, but this parent situation was much more dire than uh, two blockheaded kids who don't know how to find a phone or read a map, right? This, this parent was a father whose daughter was dying, whose daughter was on her deathbed. And so he comes, and in his desperation, he comes to Jesus for help. In Mark's account here of what happens in this account, as we read about what happens with this desperate father and his daughter, we too will learn uh, where we can turn when we are faced with desperation and death. The message for us this morning, our big idea for this morning, is that when we are faced with the desperation wrought by death, we can trust in the one who has the power to bring deliverance from death. When faced with the desperation wrought by death, trust in the one who has the power to bring deliverance from death. Those are ideas this morning, that Christ has the power to deliver us from desperation, from death. And we'll see how this works by uh, breaking this story, this narrative down into three parts. Three parts. First, we'll look at desperation. Then we'll look at delay. And then finally, deliverance. Desperation, delay, and deliverance. First, the story, it starts off with desperation. Because Mark tells us that after uh, being on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a mostly Gentile region, Jesus returns with his disciples. They cross back over the sea, back to the other side, and they have returned now into uh, Galilee, into a mostly Jewish region. And as they're returning, as they land on the other side of the sea, as they land on the shore, a crowd comes once again and throngs around Jesus. They're met with a great crowd of people. And in the midst of this crowd is a, a man named Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue. This man Jairus, he was a Jewish leader. He had oversight over the local synagogue. And so far as we've gone through Mark, we've seen uh, anytime Jesus has interacted with a Jewish leader, a religious leader, it's been hostile. And so we would expect hostility from someone like Jairus who shows up, uh, comes face to face with Jesus. We would expect him to uh, be confronting Jesus or working against Jesus or plotting against Jesus, but that's not what happens. What happens is this ruler of the synagogue, this Jewish leader, he comes to Jesus and he falls on his face before him. And he implores Jesus earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. Now, we don't know if Jairus was one of these Jewish leaders who was plotting against Jesus. We don't know if he had personal hostility towards Jesus. But what we do know is that Jairus was a father whose daughter was dying. He is a father who was desperate, and in his desperation, he came to Jesus. Someone his peers might have thought as their enemy. Someone he might have originally thought as his enemy. And yet his desperation leads him to come to this man, uh, to this holy man, this rabbi, this teacher, who he has heard can heal sickness. Who he has heard has been going around healing people, casting out demons. And so in his desperation, he comes and he falls before Jesus and implores him to heal his daughter. In the face of the desperation that's wrought by death, by the fear of the threat of death, uh, Jairus turns to Jesus. And it's a reminder to us that when we are faced with desperation, when we find ourselves in desperate circumstances in the midst of fear, in the midst of the pain or the sting of death, 
we too should turn to Jesus. We too should come and fall at the feet of the one who is able to bring greater healing, greater restoration than we can ever imagine. Whatever you believe about Christianity, wherever you are with the church, whatever your history it is, whatever roadblocks have maybe kept you from fully confessing faith in Christ, the reality is at some point all of us will be faced with death. All of us will experience the, the desperation, the fear, the pain that comes along with death, that is wrought by death in a fallen world. But here in the Bible, in Mark's Gospel, in the pages of Scripture, we are presented uh, with the announcement that there is one who has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That there is one who has the power to stand in the midst of death to bring life and restoration. And so will you turn to this one as Jairus did? That's the question before us in this text as we see Jairus, as we see this woman we're going to get to in a moment, this question of will you turn to Jesus in the face of desperation, in the face of grief, in the face of fear? As we look and we see death all around us, as we walk through a world that is more aware of death than ever before, perhaps because of the last three years, will you turn to the one who can bring healing, who can bring deliverance from death. Because that's what Jairus did. In his desperation, he turned to Jesus. And Jesus agreed to help him. He agreed to go with him and heal Jairus' daughter. But on the way, on the way there to Jairus' home, they were met with a deadly delay. With a delay that carried deadly consequences. So that's the next part we see in the story is a delay in verses 24 through 34. Now, my wife, Laura, she'll tell you that one of the things uh, that stresses me out the most in life is, is being late for something. It doesn't mean I'm always on time. I'm often late. But when I am, it really stresses me out. Right? I, don't, I don't like it. Um, I'm one of these guys who has to show up for the, you know, the, the flight two hours early for a domestic flight uh, because I don't want to miss the flight. I had an experience one time in India in 2018 where we, we missed a connecting flight in Delhi, India. So I was in a foreign country having missed my flight, trying to figure out what to do. And, and, and that really, you know, because of that, now I'm scarred. So I'm like, we got to get there four hours early. We got to get to the gate. Let's go. Let's go through security. Um, but, you know, I'm one of these guys. And I had an experience recently. Uh, my wife and I, we were coming back from a vacation overseas a few months ago. And uh, we only had a one-hour connection. Once we landed back in the States, once we landed back in North Carolina, we only had a one-hour window to make our connecting flight back to Cleveland. But of course, right, the, we had to go through customs, and customs took three hours, not because we were doing anything shady, uh, but because there was just so many people. And so we had this experience of, okay, we're trying to get somewhere, we have a timeline, we're kind of, we're kind of desperate to make our gate, but yet here's a delay. Here's a frustrating delay that's going to keep us from getting to where we need to go. And of course, we missed our flight, and we had to rent a car, and we had to drive up to Cleveland, and it ended up fine. But these things can be really frustrating. There's few things that are more frustrating than delay, especially when you're traveling, especially when you're going somewhere. But even worse than that, even more painful than that, is the delay that comes when you're in the midst of a life-threatening situation. When you're in the midst of a life-and-death situation, imagine how frustrating that would be. Because that's the situation we have here in Mark as Jesus is going with Jairus to heal his daughter. And as this great crowd is thronging around Jesus. And in this crowd, there is a woman, Mark tells us, who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
She's been suffering with some, from some sort of hemorrhage that's been ongoing for 12 years of her life. She'd seen tons of doctors. She spent all that she's had. She's suffered much. But then she heard the reports about Jesus, about this man who can heal the sick and cast out demons. So in her desperation, she comes up behind Jesus and she touches his garment. And let me tell you that her doing that was a move of unspeakable desperation. Now, what do I mean by that? Why is that, why is that such a big deal that this woman would touch Jesus' garment? You might think, hey, she just touched his robe, whatever. Why is that a big deal? Well, if we read our Old Testament, if you remember the context of what's going on here in, in Mark in a Jewish culture like this in Galilee, uh, we'll, we'll know that this woman, she didn't just have a physical problem with this hemorrhage. Her problem wasn't just physical. She had a ceremonial problem. She had a religious problem. Because her continual hemorrhaging, it didn't just cause her physical suffering. It meant that she was ritually unclean, according to the Old Testament law. If we turn to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus one of the first five books in the Old Testament that make up the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. Leviticus, in chapter 1525, God's law says that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. Now we read that and we ask, what is going on here? What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, one of the main themes of God's law is his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection, his cleanness. Now God, he, in his grace, he called a people to himself. He called the Israelites to be his special covenant people. He chose to dwell in their midst, but in order for a holy God to dwell in the midst of sinful people, he had to make ways, he had to give them laws, to give them sacrifices, so that they could go to the temple and deal with their sins, so that they could be made clean before him in his presence. Because God hates sin. You can't stand in his presence uh, with sin and corruption. He has to judge it. And so we have these laws in the Old Testament, these cleanliness laws, that were all about helping people prepare to be able to enter God's presence in the temple. There are all these laws about bodily fluids and about touching dead bodies or what you can't touch or sickness, what makes you clean, what makes you unclean. All these laws and stipulations that dictated to the people of Israel ritually how they could come and be clean in the presence of God or when they should avoid coming into the temple because they had been made unclean. And so when this, it says that this woman has had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years, according to God's law in Leviticus for, for a Jewish person in that culture at that time, that means that she would have been considered ritually unclean for 12 years. That means that she would not have been able to enter the temple and worship in the normal way. It means that she would not have been able to freely associate with her friends and family in the same way because if she touched anyone or if anyone touched her, then they would share in her uncleanness. They would have to go through the process of being made clean before they could engage in temple worship again. And so this woman lived in a miserable state, this state of uncleanness religiously and socially and culturally. And yet she hears this report about Jesus, who at this time was becoming known as a, a holy teacher, who some considered a rabbi who was a a holy man who called disciples, and this woman comes and decides, if only I touch his garment, if only I do the thing that would make this holy rabbi unclean, then maybe I'll be healed. And so what this woman was doing was shocking, was 
uh, would have been culturally shameful. It would have been a scandalous act in which this unclean woman would touch a rabbi and make him unclean by her touch. That's what uh, the context would seem to be setting up here. That's the significance of a woman touching Jesus who's unclean. But that's not what happens. Actually, what happens is the opposite. This woman touches Jesus' garment, and instead of her making Jesus unclean, Jesus makes her clean. He cleanses her of her sickness. Just the act of in touching his garment, immediately she is healed. She is cleansed of her disease. She is restored. She is made right. Instead of her impurity passing to Jesus, Jesus' purity passes to her, cleanses her, heals her. And when this happens, Jesus can tell he has a sense that some of his power has been used, has come out of him. He's aware of what has happened. And so he stops in the middle of his mission to Jairus' house. He stops in the middle of the road and asks, who touched me? Who touched my garments? And can you just imagine being Jairus in that moment? Just imagine you're desperate. Your daughter is minutes, seconds away from death. You go and you find this, this holy man who people say can heal uh, disease and he agrees to help you and so you start to hurry back to your home where you can go and have Jesus heal your daughter and then all of a sudden he stops there's a crowd around him and he stops and he looks at the crowd and he says who touched my garment how would you feel if you were Jairus in that moment experiencing that kind of delay that's a lot worse than spending three hours going through customs that's horrifying that's frustrating. What is Jesus doing here? The disciples see this, and they seem to have similar questions. They say to Jesus, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? See, there were tons of people pressing around, making physical contact with Jesus. Why would it matter that this one person in particular touched not even just him, but his garment? Why does Jesus care about this? Why does he stop and ask this? But Jesus, he doesn't move. He stays there. He looks around for the culprit. And this woman, she's amazed by what had happened to her. And so she comes and she falls before Jesus in fear and trembling. She knows what she did was potentially scandalous, but even more so, I think that her fear, her trembling has to do with the fact that she knows she's been healed. She knows that something miraculous has happened to her. And just like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee who were uh, in fear and awe of Jesus when he calmed the storm, just like the crowd who saw Jesus cast out the legion of demons and begged him to depart because they were amazed by what he did, this woman sees Jesus heal her just by touching his, her, his garment. And she's amazed. She's awestruck. She falls down before him in fear and trembling, and she confesses what she did. She confesses what she did because who is this guy? Who is this that just touching his garment can bring such healing? She falls before him. She confesses. And Jesus, he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't say what she did was wrong. He looks at her with compassion. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so in the midst of this chaotic scene with the clock winding down on a child's life, Jesus delays. He pauses. He stops and he does so. He does so to recognize the faith of a woman who was formerly unclean. To recognize her faith. And that's important because a few weeks ago, we looked at how this section, this chunk we're in, in the book of Mark, 
how a key question in this section came in chapter 4, verse 40. After Jesus, after he called the storm on the Sea of Galilee, uh, he turned to his disciples who had been panicking. He turned to them and he said, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this question is one of the main places in the book of Mark where this theme of faith is, is ushered into the text. This theme of faith is a major theme in the book of Mark. One of the main themes we're tracking here is the development of the disciples' faith themselves as they follow Jesus. But Mark also gives us the accounts of these different side characters, these different people who encounter Jesus and are either called to faith or commended for their faith. And so Mark is showing us in his gospel how faith plays a central role in how you respond to Jesus. Jesus uh, stops and he delays to reaffirm for this woman, for the disciples, for, for whoever reads Mark's gospel, that the way to find healing, the way to find restoration, is through faith in Christ. It wasn't that Jesus' uh, garment had some magical properties to it. It wasn't that Jesus cast some magical spell. What, what healed this woman was her confidence that even just touching Jesus could heal her. That Jesus was so powerful, had so much authority over sickness and death, that just a touch could bring healing. And this act of faith, this act of desperate confidence in Christ is what God uses to heal this woman. He heals her through her faith. Her faith has made her well. And so this, is, uh, the, this point is so important that Jesus, he hits the brakes on the ambulance. He pauses in his life-saving mission to highlight, to emphasize, to point to the centrality of this faith. To show us it wasn't, you know, this woman's actions, it wasn't all her money that she spent, it wasn't the doctors, it was her faith that made her well. And so I wonder if we take that point as well when we read this account, when we read God's word, do we see the centrality of faith? That true healing, true restoration, it doesn't come through your own efforts. It doesn't come through how much you give to the church, it doesn't come through how much time you spend reading your Bible, it doesn't come through all your moral efforts do the right thing. All those things are good. All those things are great. All those things are important. But true healing, true restoration uh, comes to us spiritually through faith in Christ. He alone is the one who can heal our spiritual hemorrhaging, who can heal our, heal our spiritual brokenness, our disease of sin. So do you understand the centrality of faith in the Christian life, the centrality of trusting, placing your sure confidence in Christ, saying that he alone can heal me? He alone can restore me. Or are you trying to make your own efforts enough? Are you experiencing the suffering that comes from trusting in your own abilities or possessions or achievements or righteousness? Because it is only through faith that we are truly healed. And this point is so important that Jesus paused. He delayed his life-saving mission to affirm this woman and to remind us that when Jesus is on the scene, that when Jesus is on the mission, that when he is on the case, he has, the he has so much authority that our timetables, you know, it's not that they don't matter, but our, our timetables don't work the same for Jesus. He has the authority to be able to pause in the face of death and still be able to deliver from death. Because Jesus, he has the power to cleanse the unclean. He has the power to restore the broken. He even has the power to raise the dead. That's what we see in the next part of the story, which is centered on deliverance. 
desperation, delay, and deliverance. Because the sad truth is that because of this delay, Jesus and Jairus, they don't make it on time. They're met on the way by a servant who comes and tells Jairus that your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any longer? They didn't make it in time. The delay cost them too much. Jairus' daughter is dead. But Jesus overhears this, and he turns to Jairus, and he says something remarkable. He turns to this father who's just been told that his daughter is dead. And he turns to him, and he says, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. In the face, not just of the fear of death, not just of the threat of death, but of the reality of death, Jesus turns to Jairus and says, Do not fear, only believe. And after this, he takes only uh, Peter, James, and John. He only allows these three disciples to go along with him and Jairus to Jairus' house. And we'll see something, we'll see Jesus do something similar to this in Mark 9, where he once again takes this kind of inner ring of these three disciples. And in Mark 9, he'll take them up onto the, to the mountain where he will be transfigured before them. Well, they will see a, an awe inspiring scene where Jesus momentarily lets his true glory be revealed before them. And so when we see these same three disciples here, when we see Jesus sectioning them off and taking them alone to do something, that clues us in, if we're reading Mark and rereading Mark, that clues us in to see that, okay, Jesus is about to do something significant here. Jesus, he's about to do something glorious. And so he calls these disciples to go with him to see what he's about to do in the home of Jairus. When they arrive at Jairus' house, Mark tells us that there was a commotion of people weeping and mourning. And in that culture, these people wouldn't have just been family members, they would have been professional mourners. The tradition in that culture was when, you were, when someone close to you died to hire professional people to come and, and march with you and to mourn and to wail. Um, and someone like Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, probably would have been expected to hire a good number of these kind of professional mourners. And so with the fact that they arrive on the scene with this kind of commotion going on, it shows us that um, it's not, the issue isn't just that this girl is dead, but the funeral proceedings have already begun. The professional mourning has already started. The arrangements are already beginning. And so this wasn't just an issue of a girl falling unconscious for a few minutes. This was an issue of a girl being dead and the, the official proceedings to mourn her have begun. So Jairus' daughter was certainly uh, dead. But when Jesus sees this, when he sees this mourning, this commotion, this weeping, he asks the crowd, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And Jesus comment, it's so ridiculous to these mourners that they laugh. They go from weeping to laughing when they hear Jesus say that the, the girl is only dead, because of course, no, she's, she's or is only sleeping, because of course she's, she's dead. She's not just asleep. Why would you say that, Jesus? But Jesus, in his authority, he orders all the mourners to go outside. He takes the girl's parents into her room with them. And he goes into the room in which she's lying uh, on her bed, dead. And what Jesus does is he takes her by the hand. He himself does an act that normally would make someone unclean. He touches a dead body. He takes her by the hand, but once again, her uncleanness isn't transferred to Jesus. His cleanness is transferred to her. He cleanses her even of death. He says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
And immediately, just like the woman in the crowd, immediately she is healed. She gets up. She stands on her feet. Jesus tells her parents to go and get her some food because she's alive again. Jesus has brought her, has called her out of death back into life. And everyone around her is amazed. They're overcome with amazement. And in this scene, we come to a crescendo in Mark's gospel. We come to a high point of a section that has been focused on Jesus' confrontation of death. If you remember where we've been the last two chapters, we've seen Jesus uh, calm a storm on the Sea of Galilee. We've seen Jesus literally uh, rebuke the waves of death. We've seen Jesus heal a man who was living among the tombs, who was possessed by deadly, evil spiritual forces. We've seen Jesus heal a woman who had death uh, incurring on her body, corrupting her body, hemorrhaging her. Literally, her lifeblood was flowing out of her for 12 years. Jesus has been confronting all these different uh, aspects of death, all these different uh, manifestations of death and brokenness in a fallen world. And now here he comes, not just to the threat of death, but to the reality of death, the tragedy of death, a dead girl lying in her bed. And here he reaches out and he touches her and he raises her back to life. He calls her to wake up. And as we read Mark, if we've been reading and if we've been keeping it in mind what's going on, we see, okay, some, this, there's been a, a growth, a, a movement, a momentum here in Jesus' struggle with death itself. Jesus has gone from healing and calming the threat of death to actually canceling death itself, cleansing someone not just from an issue that could cause death, but someone who actually experienced death. Jesus is confronting death and he's winning he has power over not just the threat of death, but over death itself. Jesus looked at a father whose daughter was dead, and he said to him, Do not fear, only believe. And Jesus was able to say that because he knew that he had the power, he had the authority to deliver life out of death. He knew that he had the power, the authority to delay, because he knew that he could, he could raise the girl from death. His timetable works different than ours. His authority is so much greater that the things we worry about, the things we fear, the things we think will end us, can actually be the things that he and his power uses to grow us, to heal us, to restore us, to make us more like him, to bring us closer to himself. That's how great his power and his authority is, that even the most unspeakable, even the most impossible things can be used by him to show his glory to call us to faith. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis that he wrote in his book, the, um, the Great Divorce, is that when we get to eternity, we'll see that eternity will turn even our agonies into glories. That in the light of eternity, when we see in the face of Christ, in the presence of Christ, how he has worked in our lives, how he's used even the hard, tragic things to grow us, to bring us to himself, we'll have even more reasons to glorify him because we'll see that he is the God who is sovereign even over the hard things, even over the tragedies, who is sovereign even over death itself. And so in the face of desperation and delay and death, he says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And these words aren't just for Jairus, they're for us as well, because we too live in a fallen world. 
We too experience the sting, the pain, the desperation wrought by death. And so in the midst of that, Jesus' call is the same. Do not fear, only believe. Because we may not uh, share the same experience of death that Jairus shared, but we uh, certainly, all of us, know the desperation, the fear that comes from death, both the reality of physical death, but also the fear, the desperation that comes from spiritual death, from the fact that our world is broken and corrupted by sin, that the things we suffer are a direct result of the sin in our hearts. And so we see death not just physically around us, we see death spiritually in our own hearts because of our sin. Apart from Christ, we are not just Jairus struggling with the fear and desperation of, of death. Without Christ, we are also the little girl on the bed who is dead. Without Christ, we ourselves are spiritually dead. Our sin, it separates us from the God of life. It places us in a position of being condemned, condemned, walking in spiritual death, being dead in our sins. But even in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this desperation, Christ in his word calls out to us, do not fear, only believe. Because what we see in the home of Jairus, the glory that Jesus displays in raising this little girl from the dead, it's but a foretaste. It's but an appetizer of Jesus' ultimate victory over death, of the greater resurrection that's to come. Because Jesus, he doesn't just display his power over death by raising this girl from the dead. He displays his power over the death by entering into death himself, by himself going to the cross where he was crucified, where he was killed, by himself being, by allowing himself to die and be buried in a tomb. But then on the third day, he walked out alive again. He rose again. He laid down his life and he took it up again. And he did that, not just to show us his power, he did that to deliver us from the power of death. He did that to take us, to deliver us from our spiritual death, to take us by the hand and call us from death to life. In order to free us from the death that's in our hearts, the spiritual death of our sin, Jesus had to go and take on that death himself as our substitute. But then in his resurrection power, he is able to come to us and call to us and take us by the hand and tell us to wake up, tell us to rise, not in our own power, not because of anything we've done, but through faith in him. And so through faith in Christ, we too can be delivered from the death our sin deserves, from eternal separation from God, eternal judgment for our sin. God may not deliver us from our physical circumstances, but the message of the gospel is that, in, is that Christ is the one who has the power to deliver us into eternal life. He has the power to turn even our agonies into glories. He has the power to deliver us from this death our sin deserves to bring us life in his presence for eternity, to wake us up from our spiritual slumber, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. One of my favorite lines from Tolkien comes at the end of The Lord of the Rings, uh, when the hobbit Sam, he sees the wizard Gandalf, who he had thought was dead. And he sees Gandalf alive again. And Sam, he declares, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? 
And I wonder if Jairus had a similar thought when he saw his daughter take her first breath again. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Because in raising this little girl, Jesus did something impossible. But this was only a pointer to a greater glory, a greater resurrection to come. Jesus, he is the one who has the power to calm the storm, to cast out a legion of demons, to heal a woman who has been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. He even has the power to raise a dead girl. But even more gloriously, he has the power to lay down his life and take it up again so that in him, through faith in him, we can be brought back to life. We can experience a living hope. We can have new life, true life in Christ. We can have a life that is untouchable by the fear, the brokenness, the desperation wrought by death. When faced with those things, we can trust in the one who has the power to deliver us from death. And we can walk in that security and hope all the days of our life. Until we ourselves experience physical death only as a gateway, as a path into eternal life. Because of the life that Christ has brought us. The truth of the gospel is that in Christ, everything sad will ultimately come untrue. That we may have trials and tribulations in this life, but that this momentary affliction is, is laying up for us a crown of glory that will never fade, that we have an eternal hope, an eternal life that can never be shaken, that can never be undone by the shadows of death. And all of that is because of Christ who has the power to deliver us from the shadow of death and sin, to bring us into eternal life, to make everything that is sad ultimately come untrue in him. So the question is, do you believe this message? When faced with the reality of death, with the desperation wrought by death, do you trust in the one who has the power to deliver you into eternal life? to heal your ultimate disease, to cleanse you from your impurity, to raise you out of the grave? Do you trust in him? Do you believe in him? Because our world, our hearts, are filled with desperation and delay and death. But in the midst of all of that, we can trust in the one who can deliver us, who can bring a deliverance, bring a resurrection that is more glorious, more wonderful than we ever could have imagined. So wherever you're at this morning, whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, whatever uh, manifestations of death have incurred into your life, hear the call of Christ this morning. Do not fear, only believe. Let me pray for us. Merciful Father, we confess to you our weakness, we confess to you our brokenness as we think about our own world, our own hearts, our own lives that are so full of corruption and sin, of uncleanness, Lord. We confess to you that on our own we are dead in our sins. On our own we are lost and separated from you. But we thank you that you sent a redeemer, you sent a rescuer, you sent your son to come and deliver us from death. That you worked in your power and your grace a plan to bring us from death to life by sending your son to enter death for us, to be our substitute, our representative, our savior, to take us by the hand and lead us out of the grave and into eternal life. 
Help us to believe that even in the face of fear and desperation, help us to cling to Christ, to rest in this living hope, to marvel at his glory and his power, to wonder at your grace, and to share this hope with more people who are lost in a fallen and dying world, to take your hope and your life to the places of darkness and death around us with joy, with humility, with wonder at who you are, at all you've done for us in Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll stand and sing a final song together before uh, coming around the Lord's table. So please stand and sing with me. Somebody be able to run and invite the kids to come back from Children's Church uh, to join us for this. I forgot to say that last time. So, um, 
We want to welcome them back to, to witness this. This is a time that we celebrate as a church family, uh, a time of remembrance, uh, where we look at the elements, the bread and the cup, uh, these symbols that remind us of the death of Christ, that his body was broken for us, that he took the death that we deserve in our place, and his blood was shed for us to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, and so these symbols are meant to help us in our hearts remember, reflect, respond in worship uh, and trust to, to the God who has delivered us in Christ through his death and his resurrection. And so we say that if you aren't, uh, if you aren't sure if you've made this profession of faith in Christ, if you aren't confident that you've trusted in him, and that you would use this time to reflect on what that me might mean, what these symbols represent, what it means that Jesus died and rose again for us. And we ask that if you have trusted in Christ, that you'll enter into this time with humility, with reverence, uh, and that you'll enter it uh, willing to, in your own heart, confess your sin and reflect to the Lord your, your gratitude um, for how he has worked in Christ. That this time together will strengthen, will encourage, will nourish us, uh, not because there's anything... Uh, special about the elements, but because they remind us of the truth and the hope that are ours in Christ. So as we enter into this time of remembrance, uh, let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we pass out the the bread, our, our practice is to take it and receive it, eat it individually. Um, and then as we pass out the cup in a moment, we'll take it, we'll hold on to it, we'll hold it together, and then we'll drink it together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. Uh, but first, let me pray for us. Gracious Father, help us now um, in humility and reverence to remember the death of Christ, his body broken for us. Lord, show us uh, anew, open our eyes, soften our hearts to the truth that Christ came and took our death, took our place on the cross, that he bore what we deserve so that we could receive the life that he deserves, the life uh, in your presence, the acceptance, the adoption, the hope of being your children. We thank you that Christ uh, gave of himself, that his body was broken to purchase for us this life and this adoption, this restoration, this healing. So help us now to reflect together and rejoice in the body of Christ, broken for us. In his name, amen.
the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dear gracious Father, we thank you for this cup. Use it to remind us of the cleansing power of Christ, that he shed his blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to bring us from death to life, to free us from our sins, Lord. So forgive us for our sins, forgive us for all the ways we've failed and disobeyed you, all the ways we've lived out of selfish motivations, all the ways we've chased after idols. Lord, forgive us for our sins, for Christ's sake, and help us to rejoice in the blood shed for us by your grace and mercy in Christ, in his name, amen. Now let's drink together and thanks to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Well, once again, thank you for, for joining us for worship together this morning. Uh, one announcement I forgot to mention is that we will be having a uh, meeting following the service, uh, a VBS info meeting. Um, so if you're interested, you can join us for that. Is that in Kiss Church Room? All right. So if you would like to learn more about plan, helping to plan and serve VBS, that's happening today. If you don't have to run off, we'd be happy to stay and talk and, and get to know you. And again, we're, we're thankful you're here. But as we go, just uh, let's stand for a final word of benediction.
may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.